Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 171st episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are going down to Tempe, Arizona, to a location suggested to us by listener Alicia Taylor, and that is Casey Moore's Oyster House. This is a restaurant that has theming that goes with some locations in the UK, like Ireland and Scotland. And apparently it's haunted. So we're looking forward to sharing that with you. And while I was doing the research for this, I found another haunted restaurant nearby that's also in a historic building. So we'll share a little bit about that. Before we get into that, we do want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca. Cyrese, I hope I said that right. Hi, Cyrese. And Allison. Hello, Allison. Denise, are you ready to go on down to Arizona? I most certainly am. Let's do it. All right. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and access to exclusive bonus content like Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. And this moment in oddity was suggested by Michael Rogers. In all of recorded history, there have only been two exploding killer lakes, and they were both in the country of Cameroon. The first occurred in 1984 at Lake Monown and killed 37 people. The second occurred at Lake Nyos in 1986 and was more deadly. 3,000 animals and 1,746 villagers were killed during this event. So what exactly is an exploding killer lake? Basically, these are lakes that were formed from a hydrovolcanic eruption that created a crater in the lakes. Carbon dioxide builds up within this crater over time, just like the CO2 in a soda bottle. 
The water serves as a type of cap keeping the CO2 locked down, but sometimes something happens that causes the cap effect to shift. It could be an earthquake or even a monsoon-like rainstorm. In the case of Lake Nyos, it appears that a simple landslide broke the surface and released a giant cloud of carbon dioxide. It exploded upward and stripped the air of oxygen. This could happen again, and scientists are looking for a way to prevent it in the future. Exploding killer lakes certainly are odd. Creepy makes history more delicious. This Day in History On this day, December 19th in 1776, Thomas Paine publishes his first essay in a collection of essays that would become The American Crisis. Thomas Paine was born in Thetford in Norfolk on January 29, 1737. He met Benjamin Franklin in London and asked the man to help him emigrate to the new colonies. He did so in 1774. Paine settled in Philadelphia and became a journalist. He wrote articles on various topics, but in 1776 he wrote the pamphlet Common Sense and established himself as a revolutionary propagandist. He'd only been in the colonies for a year, but he committed himself to American independence. During the Revolutionary War, Paine wrote a collection of essays and compiled them in The American Crisis. The first of these essays was published on the 19th and began with the famous line, These are the times that try men's souls. You're listening to History Goes Bump! Tempe, Arizona is the seventh largest city in the state of Arizona. The town was built on an agricultural base and grew out of the combining of two distinct pioneer towns. Many of the original historical structures built in Tempe have survived, and it's one of the town's greatest attributes. One of these buildings was originally a family home and is now a restaurant named Casey Moore's Oyster House. Locals love to gather for a beer and seafood. Patrons and employees all claim the restaurant is haunted by several spirits. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Casey Moore's Oyster House. For 1,500 years, the Hohokam people called the future Tempe, Arizona, home. They were here until 1450, leaving behind innovative canals that they had built to bring the waters of the Salt River to their crops. Those same canals laid the foundation for the current irrigation system. And when the pioneers came to this area, they were the ones who excavated and dug out those canals, and they used it as an irrigation system, and now the city still uses it. It's, it's very neat to think that there's such a history within an irrigation system like that. Charles Trumbull Hayden came to the area in 1870 and established a settlement along the Salt River that he named Hayden's Ferry. He built a flour mill, warehouses, and blacksmith shops. There was also a ferry, making sense that he called it Hayden's Ferry, to cross the Salt River. The flour mill still stands as a historic structure and was operated until 1990. So that was in business for over 100 years as a flour mill. I know, that's like almost unheard of anymore. The Hayden home also still stands today. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Hispanic families arrived from northern Mexico and established a nearby town called San Pablo. Eventually, Hayden's Ferry and San Pablo combined to form Tempe. There's a place in Greece called Vale of Tempe, and an Englishman named Lord, and they put this in quotations, so I don't know if he referred to himself as Lord, or if he really was a Lord, or if it was a nickname, Daryl Dupa. 
And he was a person who had helped establish Phoenix. And he suggested the name Tempe because that area had the same lush beauty that the Vale of Tempe and Greece had. The railroad came in 1887 and Tempe soon became an important business and shipping center because of the agriculture in the area. The education in Arizona can actually trace its origins to Tempe. In 1885, the Arizona legislator chose Tempe for the Territorial Normal School, which trained teachers for Arizona schools. William A. Moyer and his brother Benjamin were prominent members of Tempe, and William helped set up the public school system in town. And when you say that his brother was a prominent member, for those of you that know Arizona history, you might recognize Benjamin, and I I hope we're saying the last name right. I'm not sure, but Moyer, he was governor for a few years of that state. William was a member of the first school board and chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors from 1912 to 1915. In 1910, he and his wife Mary built a home on three lots at the corner of 9th and Ash. The house is a mix of architectural styles. The roof is Victorian with gabled vents, front and dormer with a bell-cast copper roof. The house itself is Western Colonial with the typical square floor plan and columned porch. There are two stories built mostly from brick, and there is a sunroom at the south end of the house. Masonry blocks outline all the corners and edges of the home. It is a larger home consisting of 4,061 square feet. William was in the home until his death in the house in 1929, and his wife Mary remained in the house until she died later in the 1940s. The house passed through several owners, and there are discrepancies as to the variety of businesses it housed. It definitely was a boarding house for a time, and some claim that it was a bordello as well. And sometimes those two were interchangeable, Denise, during that time period, we know. In 1973, it underwent extensive renovation to open it up as a restaurant. And this restaurant was called Ninth and Ash. I wonder where they got the name. I don't know, but they were very creative back then. (laughs) In 1986, another owner bought the property and did even more renovating. A covered patio on the northeast corner was enclosed, as was a covered patio along the north facade. A fire escape staircase was added to the west facade. And the sunroom on the south facade also was enclosed. So it sounds like there was a bunch of patios here and they decided to close them up. So I think the previous restaurant put all these patios in. When it's saying it was enclosed from the pictures that I've seen, it almost feels like it might be referring to maybe fencing. The nicest addition was adding several pieces of stained art glass to the window panes, and we'll include some pictures of those stained glass windows as well. In my opinion, colored glass is always a fantastic addition, no matter where you add it. Absolutely. This restaurant was called Casey Moore's Oyster House, and it is the current business here. It originally had been at 7th Street and Maple, but had been displaced. So they wanted to use that location the city did for something else. So they said, hey, why don't you move on down here? So the restaurant's website, or not so, the restaurant's website claims that Casey Moore was born in 1886 to Irish immigrants. She loved to sing and play the piano, and she invited friends and neighbors to her house often. The restaurant is apparently named for her, but we're not exactly sure why or how she's connected to the restaurant. And I'll just add, I don't even know if she's a real person. I don't know if this is something that they just kind of made up to go with the name or to go with their theming. I tried to look up Casey Moore, but obviously you guys know if you don't know a lot of specifics about somebody and the last name Moore, trying to even locate this person was impossible. So I don't know. And they didn't, they weren't elaborate about it. They just kind of said, this is who she was. So I, I'm not sure how she was connected in any way. Well, that's true. And her first name could have been Cassandra, Casey, some other name, or that could even be her middle name. So yeah, yeah it's so. like a needle in a haystack. <laughs> exactly. 
The interior of the bar is decorated in a Scottish motif, while the outside is very Irish. A real fun fact about this bar is that it has its very own Blarney Stone. This is not the one you would want to bend over backwards and kiss, though, because this one has thoroughly been peed on. <laughs> you gotta love it. Now, I've heard that the other Blarney Stone has had that happen to it as well. Hush, Diane, because I do want to kiss that one, so you just stop. I already know. If I ever make it over to Ireland, there is no way you're getting me to bend over backward, number one, that high up, because as you all know, I'm afraid of heights. But I'm not kissing some stone that guys have been up there peeing on for centuries. There's probably not pee. And besides, pee is a very good alkaline. So it would probably like <laughs> sanitize itself. Great, Denise. So your reasoning is I can kiss that because it's been sanitized by urine. Sure. Why not? <laughs> I want to kiss the Blarney Stone because it's what you do. When you go to this place, don't do it. <laughs> no, don't do it here. Not in Arizona, only in Ireland. This is a bathroom area outside for the men. You just step inside, unzip, and donate your beer back to the bar. Okay, so you're actually just peeing on something that is supposed to be a replica of the Blarney Stone. There's a motion-activated waterfall and a little moat to wash away your contribution. There's also a koi pond and a band of stray cats that hang around the spacious patio. And I want to know why this is just something the guys can do. Because Diane <laughs> wants to pee on the stone if we ever go to Arizona. Is that what you're telling me, hon? <laughs> that just seems like so sexist. <laughs> Whatever. The restaurant has reports from neighbors, patrons, and employees about strange occurrences and sightings. While we usually hear 3 a.m. being the magic hour for spooks, it would seem that 4 a.m. is the witching hour at Casey's. Neighbors report seeing a couple dancing in an upstairs room when no one is supposed to be in the restaurant. Police have been called out to investigate the intruders, and there is always no one there. The alarms are even still set. It has been surmised that since William and Mary died in the house, that this ghostly couple is them still enjoying their home in the afterlife. Did they used to dance in the house, and this is some kind of residual energy that everybody's seeing? We don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that's what's going on here. Workers there claim that utensils fly off of tables in the upper area, and interestingly, forks end up hitting the same spot on the wall. Place settings, chairs, and tables are moved about during the night, and employees find them in a disarray in the morning. A full room of customers has witnessed paintings come crashing down from the wall, and lamps above the tables swing by themselves. The apparition of a young woman has been seen. She's described as having dark black hair and light eyes. People wonder if she was a prostitute in the brothel and whether she was murdered upstairs. She disappears when people's eyes meet her gaze. Most only see her from the corner of their eyes. Some claim she expresses displeasure when couples get a little romantic in the restaurant. A bartender named Austin Owen claimed that during reconstruction, an old photograph was found of a young boy. One of the owners kept the photo. Employees claimed to see the spirit of a young boy roaming about the house, and when the owner showed the picture to the employees, they agreed that the ghost resembled that boy in the picture. So we're not sure if he was somebody who maybe stayed at the boarding house at some point. We have no record of any deaths in the house other than William and Mary, who would have died peacefully. So not quite sure. You run into those foggy areas, especially boarding houses where people come and go. Just never know what, what was going on there. The restaurant embraces the tale of hauntings. The website states it is no secret in and around Tempe that our house has a mysterious history. In the wee hours of the morning, passersby have seen a woman dressed in the turn-of-the-century clothing dancing in our upstairs dining room. 
Articles disappear and suddenly show up in odd places. Neckties are tugged and objects become weightless. However, strange as this may seem to some, the spirits that linger in this old establishment are family, here to us at Casey's. As we researched, we found another haunted restaurant that had been run out of a historic property in Tempe, and that is the Hayden House. So this was the original pioneer to this area and the original guy to settle it. The restaurant was called Monte's La Casa Vieja, and it had been the oldest restaurant in the city, covering, Denise, 11,000 square feet. Wow, that's huge. What this reminds me of is Casa Bonita in Denver. Yeah, huge, and like that with many, many different areas. Exactly, and this place, when I saw some of the internal pictures of it, it kind of looked like the same feel. It was just this really big restaurant. It had been in business for 60 years when it closed on November 17th in 2014. So what happened is I was like, what are some other haunted locations in Tempe? Because we didn't have a whole lot of information here about the Oyster House. And so I came across this thing. And then the very first thing that popped up is closing on November 17th. And I went, oh, well, that's a drag. But it still has a cool history. So that's why I wanted to throw it out here. Apparently, the owner, his name was Michael Monty. And He owned that whole area and he wanted to pursue some other avenues of basically real estate that he could do there. And the cost of beef was getting to be so much because this was a steakhouse. And so he just decided he didn't want to do it anymore. I can't imagine how hard it would be to make a decision about this because his father opened the restaurant in 1956 and it was known everywhere for its Roman bread, the steak and all the historic memorabilia that they had inside. So you're talking about I'm closing down the family business that is a staple in Tempe. Right. But it must have been that he just was not making a profit. And 11,000 square feet for a restaurant is a lot of upkeep. Yes, it is. And you're talking the people to take care of all the tables. You have to have that many people coming. A real estate firm bought the site and plans were made to develop two high-rise towers on the site. The house was rumored to be slated for demolition, but it is a protected historic property. So what happened is they have a list of all the historic properties they have there. And then they have next to them if they've been demolished or not. And it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of properties. So I worked my way through it and it didn't have anything sitting next to the La Casa Vieja saying that it was demolished. So I think it's still there. And I'm not an expert when it comes to historic buildings, but I think in order for you to get permission to demolish one of those... It takes moving heaven and earth because the reason why they are designated as historic properties is to protect them and to make sure that they don't, at least on the outside, you don't change the way they look. They want you to keep the integrity of them. Right. And it would be a shame to just demolish something that has that much history. So I'm thinking if you're going to demolish it, it has to really be falling apart, especially when the plans that were made for this, and I don't know what the state of the site is today. So for our listeners who are near Tempe, maybe you could let us know. If this house is still there, they said they were going to try to incorporate it in their plans, but they were planning to make a a hotel, some other kind of recreational areas. I mean, they were going to use this whole area to make a big shopping type district and hotel district and stuff. So I don't know how you're going to incorporate a very old house into that. So I don't know if they were going to try to refurb it, maybe use it as a hotel or I'm not sure, but. I couldn't see anything new about it, so I'm not sure what the state of it is. Yeah, because I would really like our listeners to go check it out and let us know because there was that historic church in Denver and they made them build the high rise around it. So they had to make it kind of curved and there's this little old church sitting right in the middle of this like, I don't know how many stories high rise. I think that's why I got to thinking that when they were saying that they were going to have to preserve the integrity of this historic house, 
that was what I was thinking about. And I, I believe that church is called the Holy Ghost Church. I, I was thinking that in my mind right before you said it. And so the really awesome. cool thing about it is it, it literally is this high rise building that has this little notch out of it that the church sits in. And then doesn't it have like laser green lights that go up the side of it I think so that it, it really highlights that the church is right there? If I remember right, it's been a while since we've been to downtown Denver and seen that. But now the hauntings that were reported here, there's two different types. The full bodied apparition of a cowboy had been seen in one of the rooms and this was called the mural room and it was covered with all of these beautiful murals. And then they had a fountain room and it literally had a fountain in there and it looked like a fountain that you would see in Mexico somewhere. So it kind of reminded me of the Mexico pavilion at Epcot. Mm-hmm. with the fountain and stuff that they have there. So it's the same kind of thing. There's just this big fountain in the middle of the room. This room featured disembodied laughter, the sound of clinking glasses and cutlery. So to me, that's a very residual type thing. So do these restless spirits still remain on the property, even though the restaurant is no longer open? It always makes me wonder when you have these specters in these locations and all of a sudden they close them down. Do they get lonely? Do they wonder where everybody went? Are they glad people are gone? Do they notice that there was anything there? Yeah, it would be nice to know, maybe someday. And if they did end up demolishing this or do plan to, will the spirits continue to haunt the property? I would think so, especially if they're residual, for sure. Tempe has a long history with many historic structures that could be retaining the essence of those who built the town. Is Casey Moore's Oyster House haunted? That is for you to decide. It was interesting. I like to go on to Yelp and... TripAdvisor to see what people have to say about places. And this is actually where I found out about the Blarney Stone because they don't have a whole lot of that on their website. And I was trying to see if I could find any haunting experiences that people had. And there was just a lot of people who said, I've heard it's haunted, but nobody offering them up. This is a, a college town and a lot of the college kids like to go here. And the main, I guess, criticism I'd seen a lot of is that it's a hipster hangout. <laughs> Hipsters. <laughs> so a lot of people are not very excited about the clientele that are there. So, But I've heard that the food is good and uh, the spirits are good too. So there you go. Both kinds of spirits. On our next episode, we are going to have another one where we're featuring multiple locations in one town. And this town is Waynesville, Ohio. Apparently it's a very haunted town. It was suggested to us by Amanda Turk, and uh, she shared a lot of different locations for us to check out there. One of them is connected to the Stetson Hat. Very cool. It's the Stetson House, and it happens to be haunted. So we'll be bringing several of those locations to you on the next episode. We want you guys to check out our website, historyghostbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us an email, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We want to thank Robert for sending us his really sweet email and talking about uh, just what radio means to him and now what podcasts mean to him. And for a lot of people who grew up with radio, that's one of the things that we just, we really love. Like he used to listen to the Lone Ranger and stuff. And I've told people I love classic radio. I listen to radio classics on XM and occasionally I'll even download podcasts that are old time radio. So I want to thank him for that. Yes. Amy sent us a suggestion. We want to thank you for doing that. And Miss Malone over on Instagram let us know that she had found us through Bizarre States and that she'd said that we present a fabulous history and she loves our funny quirks. I blame those on you, Denise. I'm not a quirk. (laughs) We help her get through the work day, which is what we love to do for everybody. Yes. 
Now, our last episode was about Whidbey Island. We got a lot of great feedback on that. Apparently, a lot of you know Whidbey Island or have lived in the area and visited. And Brian is one of those. And he said, hello, my wife and I crawled into the truck this morning. I scrolled through the podcast that downloaded overnight and saw Whidbey Island. I was instantly excited and knew what we were going to listen to on the way to work. First, let me tell you that I am prior military. I accepted orders to go from my ship in Pearl Harbor, a pretty haunted place, to Whidbey Island Naval Air Station. We lived in military housing that was next to Seaplane Base, where the converted hangar into the store is located. You remember that? Yes. That's where the lurker is. And he said he never knew that story, but it kind of makes sense. We lived in pre-World War II housing, very, very old. It was a tri-level house on a hill where the bottom of the top floor sat on top of the bottom floor with the middle off to the side. So, for example, you walked into the middle and had a stairway going up and a stairway going down. So they had some experiences there. First, his wife saw apparitions in the house and he saw shadows. Next, we woke up one morning. It was still dark out, maybe 2 or 3 a.m. and We both heard dogs snarling and a baby screaming. This lasted for three to four seconds and then total and complete silence. The laundry room was downstairs I could never, ever keep the door closed. I would go down before bed, push on the door, rattle the doorknob, everything, and in the morning, the door would be wide open. Also downstairs, on the other side of the laundry room, was the third bedroom. We never used it. We put the stuff we didn't want to unpack down there and kept them sealed in the packer's boxes. We filled the closet, and there was a little area next to the closet that we stacked boxes on. When my wife got a kitten, he wanted to hang out there, so he inherited the empty room with the cat bed in it. Nothing on the walls, nothing on the floor. It was literally empty. One night we were going to bed. We put the cat in his room, closed the door, and went upstairs and laid down. We heard the cat freak out and loud thuds. I thought someone broke into the house and came storming down the stairs ready to encounter someone. I didn't encounter anything, though. The window was shut, the blinds were still drawn and not moving. The kitten was sitting in the middle of the floor in a daze. One pupil bigger than the other. We thought he had a concussion and his poop was on the wall about six or seven feet up. Our guess is that something picked this cat up and slammed it against the wall, and he was so scared he pooped. That's that's horrible. That made, that part of the story made me really, really sad. Even now, it makes me, like, tear up. Otherwise, I've never seen a cat jump up six to seven feet, and there was nothing for him to leverage off of. We love Fort Casey, too, by the way. Love to take our son there and see the cannons, and there's beach access there. You both would love the house as well, and you can go up to the top. The ferry's next to the fort, and scenes of the ferry making its journey along the sound happen every 30 to 45 minutes. Fort Warden is another part of the Triangle of Fire. It has all the barracks still there. You can hike and see the ammo depots and walk into them, and it's where an officer and a gentleman was shot. Oh, I did not know that. Coopville is a one-stop-light town. Blink and you miss it. There's a right you can take that takes you up a hill, and it seems like nothing is there. We took it as there was a trail there and we like to hike. We pull up to the parking lot and there is this cemetery, which is really, really out of place. We never walk in cemeteries, but did this one as there's a restored 1800s house there and you can go inside of it. We headed back to the trail and came across Ebby's house. And he sent me a bunch of pictures, which will be in the show notes for this episode if you want to see some of that. So we want to thank Brian for sharing that with us. want to remind you guys that we are doing a live stream show on Christmas Eve. We do have an event that we made at uh, Facebook. 
We will also make sure that we're putting links up everywhere so that you guys can join us if you're not doing anything. 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Christmas Eve, the 24th, we'll be in our back patio and uh, live stream. And you guys come and chat with us, listen to us, share some of the flash fiction and scary stories. And we're also going to make an attempt to record it so we can put it up on the feed for all of you who cannot attend that. So we'll see if we can get that recorded for you guys as well so you can share in the fun. And we do have a review to share from iTunes. This is from VXDVXN, Fun Way to Experience History, five stars. This podcast is unique by combining history and supernatural locations. The couple who present the podcast are endearing and they admit they aren't perfect. That's part of why I like it. The care they show in putting the cast together is evident in every aspect of the show. They are more interested in connecting with the audience than a potential mispronounced word. You definitely feel like one of the insiders just by listening. They have additional information on a website and eagerly correspond with people who write in. This is the only podcast I've listened to that is so inclusive for the audience, especially since there are no commercials to make the show possible. They have listener support, so no break in the show to convince you to buy the same items you've heard on all the other podcasts. It's a very pleasant change. If you like your history with a side of Supernatural, I love that. I think I'm going to steal it. Or if you're just into history or Supernatural, give this podcast a shot. I'm sure you'll be pleased with the information and presentation. Well, thanks so much, VXDVXN. We greatly appreciate that. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Emily Ridner and Rich Gibbs. We'd also like to thank Cindy Wad and Bob Sherfield for increasing their donations. And we'd like to thank Robert Flood for his very generous one-time donation. Thank you. Be sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.